Stand with me, if you will, for our New Testament reading from Philippians chapter 1. As we hear a message of joy once again this morning. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So so whether that I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Pray briefly with me. Father, we simply pray this morning that your truth would be revealed and that your truth would bring freedom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You be seated. In your own mind, complete this sentence. Life is. Life is blank. Bumper stickers inform us of what life is. T-shirts inform us of what life is, right? Life is a beach. Or maybe a word that sounds similar to beach that's not appropriate to say. Or life is happiness. Life is good. Or maybe just a shortened yet popular version apparently on many automobiles today is not so much life is, but it's just simply salt life, right? So I guess life is salt or whatever word you want to put in front of life. I wonder what life is to you. We see what life is in advertising explicitly and implicitly, but what about in your own hearts? For us, life is golf. Life is power. Life is a perfect home. Life is physical health. Life is well-behaved kids. Life is religion. Life is approval. Life is success, life is comfort, life is possessions, life is the right job, the right clothes, 
the right body image, the perfect exercise and diet routine. That's what life is. It's interesting when we ask this question, how honest we're even willing to be in our own minds. The prophet Isaiah, and then Jesus quotes him later, even says about his own followers, you come near to me with your mouths, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And the truth is, at least I will confess personally, that oftentimes what comes out of my lips is inconsistent with what is in my heart. You know, a real telltale sign of what life is to us would be our calendars, right? Our calendars reveal what life is. Our checkbooks reveal what life is. Our credit card statements reveal what life is. Our obsessions reveal what life is. Our social media accounts reveal what life is. And we look to all these various things, and it's as if we make this demand on various things, all the while seeking to find a life. What we're saying is, tell me who I am. Give me a life worth living. And so we do things like look at a spouse, and we put them in a position that they were never intended to be in, essentially a God-like position, a messianic position, and we say, tell me who I am. Or we elevate our job to a messianic position, and we look at our job, and we say, define me. Or maybe the most perilous of all the regular messiahs we make in life, we look to our kids, and we say, tell me who I am. And by the way, if I don't like what you say, I'm going to shame you until you can say what I want you to say because I'm insecure and I don't know what life is. And my search for life leads me to my job or my home or religious or moralistic behavior or possessions or comfort or approval. All the while, life is missing, it seems. The great theologian throughout church history, St. Augustine, said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in thee. Pascal, the great philosopher and mathematician, spoke about a God-shaped vacuum that exists within our hearts that we are incessantly seeking to fill with something of worth and identity, to make life worth living. The Bible calls this procedure and this practice and this search worship. It also calls it idolatry. There's a lot that could be said about idolatry, but fundamentally idolatry is this, making good things God things. You see, everything essentially that I just named are really good. Life is good. Golf is good. The beach is good. Exercise is good. A spouse is good. Children are good. 
But none of those things are God. And when we seek to make demands on good things and make them God things, Romans 1 tells us it's a fatal substitution. We cannot exchange that which is created for the Creator. Yet that's what we do when we are seeking to find life. But God made us for Himself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. And that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 1 and specifically in verse 21, which is the overarching principle that I want us to reflect upon this morning. Paul defines life in Philippians 1, and he says, life is Christ. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now I understand full well, especially with a crowd this big, that to live for all of you is not Christ. But to live for every one of us is something that is Christ-like. That is messianic. That is salvific. Right? That we look to for hope and identity. I don't know what that is for everybody. What it is for the Apostle Paul and what I want us to consider this morning is that life is Christ. And death is gain. Which sounds pretty sensational. And maybe even confusing. And of course we've got to unpack in more detail what it means that life is Christ and death is gain. It has been historically said by one Christian, I have one passion. It is He and He alone. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is seeking this morning for our purposes to reorient us around Christ. To reorient our lives around the gospel. And to challenge our cultural orientation when it comes to life. Historically, if we think about a cultural orientation, we could think about such historically, let's say, from an Epicurean cultural philosophical position, which essentially is summarized in, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. This would be modern-day hedonism, right? Life is about eating and drinking and being merry, and then we die. Here's the problem. What happens when we eat and we drink and we're not merry? Or what happens when we eat and we drink and the merriness does not remain? What happens when we eat and we drink and we awaken and we go to sleep regularly with what could be coined as a moral hangover. A hedonistic Epicurean philosophy is problematic. Another cultural orientation we could take in seeking to find life would be, I'm just going to be a Stoic. Stoics are much more intelligent than Epicureans, by the way. Right? This is the cynical, sarcastic, cognitive approach to the emotional, heartfelt Epicurean. A Stoic is going to cognitively, intellectually rise above hedonism 
and we're just going to move into flat-out nihilism, which is a sense of hopelessness. Shakespeare nails this in Macbeth when he says, Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what life is. A tale told by an idiot, signifying nothing. I don't know if you tend to lean more Epicurean in your sensibilities or Stoic in your sensibilities. These things are influenced by a number of things like personality and profession and family of origin, etc. These would be fun things to talk about at another time. The reality is we all are culturally oriented to a certain disposition where we seek to find life. And then here comes the gospel, which is a proclamation and an announcement that seeks to reorient essentially everything that we naturally have within us. It's an announcement and a proclamation that says life actually is in Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For us to understand a little more detail what it means to live is Christ and to die is gain, I think Paul puts before us a gospel perspective and a gospel manner of life or a gospel walk. So I want us to unpack what it means to have a gospel perspective because that's important for us to understand if we want to understand what it means to live as Christ or is Christ. Living is Christ when we have a gospel perspective and when we have a gospel walk. Before we start to unpack this gospel perspective, let me clarify once again, because I don't think it can ever be clarified enough, what the gospel is. It's good news, not good advice. It's a proclamation and an announcement that says, you think you're bad? Actually, lighten up. You're far worse than you've ever imagined. But you think you're loved? And accepted and forgiven, you're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. The gospel at its heart is one of free mercy and free grace. Because you see, the gospel way of understanding Christianity is primarily not about what you must do or what you have done. But the gospel is primarily about what Christ has done. Is that how you see Christianity? Is that how you've heard Christianity? Primarily not about what you must do, but what Christ has done. You see, it's the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion says it's about what you must do. The gospel says it's about what Christ has done. One more way to say it would be this from Jerry Bridges. Your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Never beyond the reach of God's grace, never beyond the need of God's grace. It all comes back to the gospel. And it's what we've got to preach to ourselves every day. It's our permanent street address. And Paul says you've got to have a gospel 
perspective. In order to have a gospel perspective, we see in the text, a gospel perspective changes the way we look at suffering and hindrances. And don't we need a different way to look at suffering and hindrances? As hard as we try, as much in the Western world, as much in our socioeconomic circles, as hard as we try to anesthetize ourselves to hindrances and sufferings, it just doesn't work. And in fact, it's an amazing thing when suffering hits, it creates a great equilibrium, does it not? It starts to help us estimate things a little differently in life. It starts to bring us to that notion of what really matters. And that's where Paul is, because remember, he's in prison, chained probably to two guards each on one side of him, writing a letter of joy to his friends at the church at Philippi. And he says, you know what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll sing about this at the end, but the hymn, Jesus on my cross have taken. Henry Light writes, Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, but all must work to good for me. That's a gospel perspective on suffering and hindrance. We didn't read this verse, but Paul in verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's a totally different perspective on suffering and hindrance. That's part of what it means to live Christ. Another aspect of a gospel perspective is the way in which we look at other people. A gospel perspective reorients the way we look at other people. And we see this in the text. Feel free to look back in your bulletin. Starting in verse 23, Paul's reasoning to himself about his calling and his perspective and what it means to live Christ. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. And in a trivial way, I've always kind of read this and interpreted this like a really high-level college athlete that could go pro, right? But is not a senior. And so there's this debate, right? Do, Do I go, do I enter the draft? Or do I stay here and try to win another national championship? Or do I stay here and try to win a national championship. I know that's trivial, but that's the way that I've always thought about this. Paul is like, look, these are great options. I'd love to continue to run through the T. It's really great. However, I'd rather go to the NFL. But you really need me here because you don't have a quarterback. On a much deeper plane, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress And your joy, there it is again in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, living Christ is a gospel perspective that reorients the way that we look at other people and the way we look at circumstances. And it orients us to this life of service where we put others' good ahead of our own. 
And you know as well as I do, when you do that, even with the struggles that it takes to do that, there's something deeply satisfying about doing that. There's something deeply satisfying about putting others' interest ahead of your own, which is what Christ did consistently. And so if we're going to live in Him, we will live empowered by Him, and we will live like Him. But a gospel perspective also has a different way to look at eternity. So it's a different way to look at our circumstances, particularly ones that are hardship and suffering. It's a different way to look at other people. That's what it means to have a gospel perspective. And then it also means to have a different way to just account for time, period. It's to have an eternal perspective, which is hard for us. It's very hard for us to contemplate and understand the depths of eternity. It's very hard for us to understand and interpret that our life, no matter how long it is, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, is just a blip. And just because it's hard for us to conceive that does not mean that's not true. Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that's how we all feel to one degree or another, right? This whole idea of death and eternity is something we joke about, like Billy Joel, right? Some say there's a heaven for those who await. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Because only the good die young. But Paul has this different perspective on death and eternity that is rooted in more hope and more truth. And he says, you know what? I do want to keep living. But if I don't, so be it. Because dying is gain. You know why? Because Paul knows the truths that John writes about in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I know it's hard for us to conceive of the new heavens and the new earth. And we can talk about that at another time. But one of the ways that I think it helps us to understand the new heavens and the new earth more is not so much to think about the presence of what will be there, but for us to think about the absence. It's very hard for us to conceive what it will presently be like in the new heavens and the new earth. But I've always found it easier to conceptualize the absence of what will not be there in the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what Revelation tells us? No more tears. No more mourning. No more death. No more sin. Isn't that what we all long for? Isn't that actually what's at the bottom of every desire when we're seeking life and something else? What we're really seeking is to not feel pain. What we're really seeking is to remove the tears. What we're really seeking is to live in a way, in a world that's the way it's supposed to be. And Paul says there is such a world. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And if they take my life at this trial that I'm getting ready to go to as I sit here in prison, so be it. So that's a gospel perspective. It's a reorienting of the way we look at hardships. It's a reorienting of the way that we look at other people. And it's a reorienting in the way that we look at eternity and time. 
But this gospel perspective leads to something. It's as if Paul is saying to live as Christ means a transformation and a reorientation of your mind and your heart that then manifests itself in your life practically. And so it's not just a change in gospel perspective, but it's a gospel walk. Did you see that the text tells us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? And most scholars would say this concept or translation of conduct is not the best. They said a much better interpretation would be to use the word walk. Walk in a manner that is consistent with a gospel perspective. If indeed this gospel perspective is true and it transforms our head and it transforms our hearts, it also must transform our hands and our lives, right? What does it mean to have a gospel walk? What does it mean to walk in such a way that is consistent with this good news? Let's unpack this briefly. The first thing the text tells us is to stand firm. The gospel perspective leads us to a gospel walk and... Oddly enough, and maybe somewhat counterintuitively or paradoxically, what do we do to begin this gospel walk? We stand. Still and firm. Rooted in Christ. Rooted in this truth of the gospel. Rooted in that at the end of the day, my life is not summarized in what I do or what I don't do, but my life is summarized in Christ because He as the historic hymn tells us, is the solid rock on which we stand. The gospel empowers us to stand firm in the midst of opposition with truth. I can't help but to think of a hero of mine, Winston Churchill, whom I have loved for years and years and found great delight in Gary Oldham's newest film, which he won the Oscar for, The Darkest Hour, which is essentially just precipitated on a very brief time in Churchill's life, but also highlighted beautifully the power of standing firm and the power that words have to embolden a nation, to stand against tyranny and opposition. Churchill said so many things that are famous. This would be towards the top of the list. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle. You ask what our policy it is. It is to wage war by sea, land, and air. With months of struggle before us. With all the strength God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the darkened Lamentable catalog of human grime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? You know. Victory. Victory at all cost. Paul is saying, even on a deeper level than Churchill could communicate, to stand firm for the truth. But he, only, he doesn't only say stand firm with regard to a gospel walk. He says walk together. Walk together with other people. Because he understands 
the power of what he goes on in another letter to say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. There's a myriad of reasons. Christendom is falling today. There's a myriad of reasons Christianity and specifically the gospel is not compelling to an unbelieving, hurting world. One of the reasons the gospel is failing for so many people today is the divisiveness that exists in our culture and specifically in the church. The divisions that exist socially, the divisions that exist politically, the, ex- the divisions that exist ethnically and racially are tearing apart the heart of the gospel. And if we want to live like Christ, with Christ, we must do so in community with others. One author talks about the early church like this. And I think this will resonate with you. The early church grew not because of the spiritual gifts of Christians, such as the gift of speaking in tongues, and not because Christianity was such a palatable doctrine. To the contrary, it is about the most unpalatable doctrine there is. Some of you might concur. But because they had discovered the secret of community, generally they did not have to lift a finger to evangelize. Someone would be walking down a back alley in Corinth or Ephesus and would see a group of people sitting together talking about the strangest things, something about a man and a tree and an execution and an empty tomb. What they were talking about made no sense to the onlooker, but there was something about the way they looked at one another, about the way they cried, about the way they laughed together that was strangely appealing. It gave off the scent of love. The onlooker would start to drift further down the alley only to be pulled back to this little group like a bee to a flower. He would listen some more, still not understanding, and start to drift away again. But he would be pulled back thinking, I don't have the slightest idea what these people are talking about. But whatever it is, I want part of it. That's compelling. A gospel walk is compelling to an unbelieving world when it is in unity together. just to open a theological Pandora's box, the Bible actually delineates and distinguishes certain sins from others. All sin is sin to some degree, and then to another degree, some sins are worse than others. And Proverbs 6 talks about six things the Lord hates, and then it says actually, and there's a seventh that the Lord hates the most. You know what He hates the most? It's none of the cultural vices that I could enumerate for you or that might come to your head. Proverbs 6 says, the thing that the Lord hates the most is discord and dissension among His people. A lack of unity and togetherness. A gospel walk is standing firm in the truth and a gospel walk is standing together with a common mission of love and mercy and grace and light. Very last thing. Paul says, stand firm in truth, stand together with others, and then also stand against opposition. If you're a Christian, you live in a world today where it's hard to be a Christian. To have morals 
but to not be moralistic. To seek holiness while at the same time not being holier than thou. We've got to be embodied and emboldened and strengthened by Christ in the midst of a waging cultural war to stand against the opposition when it comes to moral discernment and truth. And the best way to do so is not by preaching, but it's by praying and it's by living lives that are beautiful, that are compelling, that are humble. That's what it means to live as Christ, to have a gospel perspective and to have a gospel walk. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Father, we thank you that you've not left us without witness. We confess, despite the way we look, despite the way we talk, despite the way we often live, we're lost on many levels. We don't know what life is and we don't know how to live. We confuse the gospel and religion. We confuse Christianity with hedonism and nihilism. We seek to find gods in anything but you. So we pray for your grace and your mercy. We pray that Christ would become more beautiful to us. We are thankful, Jesus, that you had a gospel mentality and perspective, that you walked the gospel perfectly. We pray that through your walk, And through your perspective, you would change us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.